We are, we are nearing the end of, uh, of this series on First and Second Samuel, the, the lives of the first couple kings of the, the people of Israel. Um, we'll finish this within the next couple weeks. Um, we'll also soon, uh, in a couple weeks, have uh, Zach Washburn will be here preaching. Uh, the Washburns will be back from Oregon for vacation, so Zach will be able to preach here again, uh, which uh, if you don't know him, he, the Washburns used to be a part of our church, major important part of our church for years and years and years. We preached together, and um, Zach's going to take my spot for a week, which I'm looking forward to. Um, I have no idea what he's going to preach on. It won't be on First and Second Samuel, uh, but it'll still, still be great. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll finish this series. We'll spend a, a couple weeks, a few weeks in Proverbs, and then in the fall, we're, we're going to move into a long series on the book of James. Um, so that's what's ahead of us. The text this morning from 2 Samuel 19 will be on the screen. If you have your Bible, uh, I'd encourage you to open it up and, and read that in front of you. We'll start in verse 16. Uh, David is returning to Jerusalem after he has been kicked out of Jerusalem by his own son, Absalom has uh, led a rebellion against him, but Absalom now in 2 Samuel 19, he's dead. Uh, he's been caught up by the symbol of his own vanity, his hair, and he's been killed. Um, and David is able to return to Jerusalem and, and retake his place as the rightful king. And as he's moving there, we're going to see a series of of interactions with three different people that he meets along the way. They're, they're actually, two of them are callbacks. Um, they're, they're all callbacks from earlier in the, the story. Uh, one of them, the first one, um, this name, Shimei. I googled how to say this name, okay? I'm much stronger with Greek pronunciation than Hebrew. And I just want to know how to say it. And you can find like anything on the internet. Every single link that I clicked with the audio file was a different pronunciation. So I'm just going with Shimei. Um, I think that's pretty close to at least pretty close how it is. Shimei has appeared earlier in the story um, when David was uh, marching, was fleeing Shimei, who is a Benjamite, he was within Saul's clan. He comes out to the road, and he's just sort of whipping rocks at David and his, his crew, and he's lobbing curses at him. And uh, David's right-hand man turns to him and says, do you want me to deal with this? Like, and David says, it's fine. You know, he, he, maybe, maybe God's told him to curse me. So let's just let God deal with him and we'll ignore him. Well, now David's coming back. And who shows up? But uh, good old friendly Shimei. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Basharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And I'm going to skip ahead to verse 18 where this starts. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come to meet my lord the king. 
Abishai, the son of Zerai, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? This is the same question that the same man has asked previously. But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zerai, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not know, do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. Now, Mephibosheth is also a callback in the story. We talked, we spent a Sunday on Mephibosheth. Um, Mephibosheth is a descendant of Saul, he's the son of Jonathan, son of Saul. And Mephibosheth is this last remaining person from the household of Saul. And if you remember the description of him, he's, he's sort of weak in the feet. They say he's a cripple. And David has given him favor and extended his covenantal blessing uh, that he had with Jonathan to Jonathan's descendant. And Mephibosheth has been given this sort of place of security and honor that David has extended to him. And he's kind of locked in that for life. Now, as David was leaving, Mephibosheth's servant came to him, to David, and basically said, "Uh, yeah, we're not with you. I came, uh, but my master, he's not with you. And he was lying. He was not telling the truth about Mephibosheth. Well, now David's coming back, back, and Mephibosheth is trying to sort of make things right and say, like, hey, I really have always been on Team David. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back to safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? The king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba, his servant, shall divide the land." Mephibosheth said to the king, O let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. So this is interesting. David, we're not totally sure what David seems to be doing here. He's saying to Mephibosheth, it's fine. I've just decided, you know, no penalties really. I'm not going to kill you, but we're going to take the inheritance that I gave you and divide it in half. And and one one commentator Peter Lightheart said that it seems like maybe David is testing Mephibosheth to see if he's really like on the side of the king to the degree he says he is. And Mephibosheth passes the test because he doesn't say, now wait a, wait a second, why do I have my inheritance divided in half? He just says, hey, I'm just happy to be in good relationship with you. And so he passes the test. Here's our final person. Now, Barzillai, the Gileadite, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. 
But Barzillai said to that king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to the Lord, to my Lord the king? Your servant will go a little while over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city, near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Chimam. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. The king answered, Chimam shall go over with me, and I'll do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimam went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. This is three interactions that David has with three different people who have different levels of relationship with him. And this is actually a reflection of David's character throughout all of 1 and 2 Samuel. One thing that is consistent throughout the the whole story of David is that he is remarkable in how he treats other people, especially his enemies. There's many times when David has the opportunity to, uh, to be vindictive, to be harsh, and he often extends a generosity and a mercy towards them that is hard to explain in the text. And even in the Bible, in the scriptures itself, the people who are around David are kind of like, hey, what's your problem? This is not how you deal with this. But David, time after time, extends a generosity to people. And often it is is rooted in his conviction that God is up to things in the world that David cannot see or know, and it would be wise, it would be best to leave this person over in the hands of God, that God would do what he sees fit. Most uh, iconically, this is David's rationale with Saul where David has the opportunity to kill this man who is hunting him down for no reason. And David has the opportunity twice to end his life, and he doesn't. He withholds the sword. One time he cuts off a little piece of Saul's cloak, and even for that, David repents and says that he should not touch the Lord's anointed. The conviction being that God is at work in the world, and David is not by rights the one who should come and dole out harsh punishment to people. It's almost mystifying to the people around him. And here we have three different types of people that David has to deal with. One is an enemy. Shimei was an enemy. He he was literally hurling rocks at David. He was lobbing verbal stones at David, calling the judgment of God down on David. And David now has the opportunity to repay him. And by rights, by the way, Abishai, his right-hand man, is correct that there should be punishment for Shimei. That is a right application of the law that you're not to call down curses on the Lord's anointed. 
And instead of doing what seemingly is the just and called for thing, David withholds that judgment and says, look, it's a good day. I'm king. Nobody else needs to die here. Nobody else needs to die today. I'm going to go sit on the throne and it's fine. And then, of course, David has a person who has been labeled an enemy, Mephibosheth, but is actually not. And he asks Mephibosheth to explain himself and actually listens to what Mephibosheth says. Now, many people, including the person that David is often being compared against throughout 1 and 2 Samuel, Saul, many people, including and especially Saul, do not ask the question, can you explain yourself? And they certainly do not listen to this cripple who has been given all the favor of the king and deserves none of that favor and has seemingly become an enemy. The, the judgment should be swift and violent and it should be over. But David asks the question and listens to the response and discerns the truth of the matter with this man and does not disinherit him, but keeps him in his position of favor. And then, of course, he sees this this older man who has been faithful to him. And in some sense, Barzillai, he's done what he should. He's the rightful king, and he's provided food. That's pretty much his duty. He should do that. But he's demonstrated a degree of faithfulness that David does not pass by, and in his determination to be generous to this man, he extends the reward not to just him, but the person, Chimam, who Berzelai has said, give it to him instead. I'm too old. I, I can't move. I'm settled here. I like where I am. There is an ethic of generosity that flows throughout David's reign. And, and we are invited to look at David and have him stand before us in some sense, and in this specific regard, ask the question, do we lead and do we live like David? Do we extend this kind of mercy and patience and generosity even to our enemies? And, and I know that when I read the accounts of David like this, I, I am deeply convicted Because my inclination, my natural response, is not to behave as David does. I I do not just let my enemies go with a free pass. And when I say enemies here, let me be clear, no one has ever thrown a rock at me. Maybe people have called curses down on my head, but never to my face. Nobody has ever tried to kill me, okay? I don't have the kind of enemies maybe that, that David has. But the people who have slighted me, who seemed opposed to me, the people who I perceive to be my enemies, I'm not inclined to treat them with mercy. Even though I know that I should, even though I have these, this icon of generosity who's important to me, David, uh, and then I can name a dozen or more others who are personally in my life, my inclination is to take the wrongs done to me and make those the missiles that I will lob back. And something about that feels incredibly right. I can say, look, I didn't initiate this. This is retaliation for what you have done to me. So, you know, don't, don't mess with the bull unless you want the horns. That's all I'm saying. 
That, that's my mentality very often. And often because that is the, the mentality that I'm enmeshed in, when I meet somebody like Mephibosheth, who I, who I think has been wronging me, I'm not inclined to stop and to ask, what is the truth of the matter here? Can you explain yourself? I'm, I'm so often locked into the mission of defending my own kingdom, my own throne, that even the one who I think might be a pretender to my throne, I'm ready to throw down. Mephibosheth, in my story, does not get a moment to explain himself. Dude dies. That's how the story ends. I have given you this generosity. I have been good to you. I've been kind to you. And yet you don't come and ride out with me. We're done, Mephibosheth. We are done. I, I often can very, I'm very easily tempted to walk into a situation with somebody who I, who I sense might have ought with me or who, who has opposed me or thinks ill of me and just ride in with the mentality that I will, I will ride these people down. There is no question. Now, I hope that I can be at least as faithful to those who are faithful to me as David is in this third category. I hope at least that I'll be somebody who is faithful to me. Um, now, however, what often happens is that I, I tend to set parameters around what that means, being a friend to me. And oftentimes, friendship, real friendship, involves being something other than just a cheerleader. A real friend will often be in the position to say, hey man, you're wrong. You should not be this way. You should not do thus and such. Now, if I am deeply immersed in this world of defending my own throne, as I feel that David also should be but isn't, that person can appear to me not like a friend but an enemy. So while I can say that I'm in, I want to say that I'm faithful to people who are faithful to me, it can too easily become I'm faithful to people who cheerlead for me and provide the kind of support that I think I want at all times. Now all of these things, these different scenarios in which I don't live up to, to David's example, these are often not conscious decisions I'm making. It's the natural bent of my heart to be obsessed with my own position in the world and to defend myself and the imaginary throne that I think I sit on. And I think this is, this is the position that many of us are in. You very well could be better people than me. But I, I dare say that at least some of what I just said rings true to you. That, that, by, that by nature and without thought, you see yourself as the center of every story and you are looking to enhance and entrench your position as that center. And if these kinds of people move, when these kinds of people move in and out of your life, it's really hard to be like David. Now, if we come to the text we come to the Bible, 
especially the Old Testament. And all we see is these three categories of people and say, we should be more like David. We should be better with these three classifications of people. And then we close our Bibles and say, go team, see you next week, let's do better. Then we will find ourselves here next week reading the Bible again and once more saying, man, I should just really do better than I'm doing. Hear me, the Bible is probably going to tell you you should do better than what you are doing. But the conviction, our conviction here, is that this is not a a moralism club. And the Bible is not chiefly an instruction to you about how you should do better. You know, this is a profound misunderstanding that even after 2,000 years, we are still churning through in culture. People think that we are gathered here being told how to be better people and then leave here believing that we, we are actually better people. It's very easy to read the Bible that way. When you read the Bible that way, though, the Bible then becomes a message centered entirely around you. The question that we ask when we come to the Bible very often by nature is, what is this saying to me about me? And we do not believe that the Bible is to you about you. We believe that the Bible is for us about God. So the question here when we read this story of David and his interaction with three people is what is this saying about God? We hear in this story and see exemplified for us with these three different kinds of people. Actually, not just the way that we should be in the world, but the way that God is towards us at the cross. What I would want you to reread 2 Samuel 19 and see is three things that God does for his people in the true king of Israel, Jesus, in the king's place of enthronement at the cross. Because Jesus will come across us and do these three kinds of things with us. First and foremost, at the cross, David's true son, Jesus, is displayed in glory and gathered around him are all of his enemies. And we see when Jesus is on the cross itself in the Gospels that there are people that are gathered around him hurling insults and curses and mocking him. And what the true king of Israel does in that moment is he doesn't just do what David does, but he does it better. And he gives mercy to his enemies. David is forgiving the curses of a man who cannot touch him. Jesus looks at all of the gathered enemies who are crucifying him and cheering his death. And he turns and he says in his heart and with his lips, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. 
And through the death of Jesus, Jesus extends that mercy, not just at the cross in a word, but extends mercy to all of his enemies that would come after him and realize in horror what they've done all of their life in lobbing curses at the Son of God. And Jesus is as quick and as generous with his mercy and even more so. So when we see David forgiving Shimei, we get a tiny, tiny glimpse of what Jesus does with his enemies at the cross. And because of the cross and at the cross, Jesus does the same thing that David does with Mephibosheth, where he hears the accusations leveled against this covenant partner, and he dismisses the accusations. See, the word that we have for the devil, Satan, that means accuser. And for all of the people of God, all the people who trust in Jesus, you will not be exempt from an experience of the accuser coming constantly to you and accusing you, telling you that you are unworthy and unlovable, that you You deserve nothing before God, that you are disgusting before Him, that there is no way that God might extend this kind of generous love to you. And because of the cross and at the cross, God takes the mouth of the accuser and He shuts it forever. No longer does the accuser get to tell the truth about you. He does not tell the truth about the people of God. But it is instead the word of the king that has made a determination about you, sealed forever for you at the cross. And then we have this last person. This last person, this ally of David to whom David extends the benefits of reciprocal faithfulness. And when Jesus is put on the cross, Jesus is the faithful ally that you and I have never been able to be. See, all of these ways that we we fail to live up to David's example, they are symptomatic of a core truth that we we are allied to our own cause and not the cause of God. We are faithful to our name and not the name of the king. And by rights, those standing to the right and to the left of God should turn to him and say, what should we do with this one, this traitor? And instead of giving us what we seem to deserve, God extends the faithfulness of his son to the hands of traitors like you and I. You and I are then treated as if we were the faithful ally of the king all along. And we see this sort of exchange happen in David's story because it is not Barzillai that gets the benefits of faithfulness, is it? It's Chimam. 
who benefits from Barzillai's faithfulness. You are treated as if you were a faithful son or daughter, not because of your own actions, but because of the actions of the only truly faithful Israelite. This story, this text, is not an instrument for you to figure out a way to climb up the ladder of morality to touch the throne of God. This story is laid out and presented to you so that you might see the real and true King of Israel extends generous love to you despite your own opposition to His reign. You are the one who has hurled curses at God. You are the one who stands accused all the time by a mix of lies and truths. The one that any normal king would dismiss as an unworthy covenant partner. You are the one that fails to be faithful to the king. The hero of the story is not you and me figuring out how to be like David. The hero of every single story in the Bible is Jesus. The hero in this story rescues you. The hero in the story looks to you who ought to be the enemy of God and extends His favor and His blessing. You who ought to stand accused before God are instead spoken of as beloved, as son, or as daughter. You are treated as if you were the faithful one. The king sits enthroned before you today. The king sits enthroned and raised in majesty before you. He is Jesus. And in His life and His death and in His resurrection, He has secured for you a place that is bigger than your own failure and sin. There is a generosity that we are meant to see in David that is just a small glimpse of generosity of the love of God. Tim Keller wrote a book um, talking about the parable of the prodigal son. And he talks, he, he titles his book, The Prodigal God. Prodigal does not mean wandering or lost. Prodigal means wasteful. And one of Keller's central arguments is that when Jesus tells this story of the son that's lost and faithless, that when he comes back, the one who is prodigal, the one who is wasteful, is the father. Because the father in the story seems to be effusive and wasteful in his love and his generosity. David often appears this way in his stories. And what you ought to experience, what, to, what you ought to know about God, is that he is so generous to us that it appears that he is wasteful in his love. And you may be in a place this morning where you cannot believe that God would be so wastefully loving towards you. 
whether you have, have known and trusted Jesus for a long time or you never have, it is easy to look back over this morning or this past week or this past year or the past decade and say, because of this, because of this, because of this, God should not accept me. And what is standing before you is a declaration that God will always be this way towards you. Whether you feel far from God, whether you feel like you should be better off, whether you feel like you are close to Him, the benefit of His life and death and resurrection are secured and covenanted towards you forever. And that has nothing to do with you. This has nothing to do with you. It does not matter how good you feel about yourself this morning. It has nothing to do with you. Your story, my story, this story, the hero is always the same. It's Jesus. So if you are here this morning and you feel despondent and bereft and far from the love of God, I'm here to tell you again that the hero of this story is the same as the hero of your story. It's Jesus. And He is not keeping you at arm's length. He is not keeping you in probation. He is not waiting for you to figure out how to climb up the ladder of morality and to be better. He is saying, I have always intended and set my will to be like this to you. Come to me. Would you respond this morning to the beckoning, generous, persistent love of God? Would you let Him be gracious to you though you've been an enemy? Would you let Him hear all of those accusations that have been thrown at you from outside and from inside? Tell Him all of them. Tell Him all the accusations and let Him shut the mouth of the accuser for you this morning. Would you tell Him all of the ways that you have been faithless? All of the ways that you've abandoned and betrayed Him? Would you hear Him say, I have been faithful for you and I will be faithful to you. Come to Jesus this morning. Come to Him. He's ready and willing and eager to be generous and kind and good to you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so, so thankful that you are not as we would expect you to be. And Paul writes that we can pray and pray and ask, but God has already secured for us every spiritual blessing. He's given far more than we could ever ask or imagine. We know that all of that is tied up in the cross. You've been so unimaginably good to us.
God, we know that we fall far short of this graciousness that we need. We have, we have been hard on people. We have been vindictive. We've sought retribution in the pursuit of securing our own kingdom. We stand before you again, opening our hands, saying we are in need of mercy. God, we know that we cannot just be better, but we need you to transform our hearts. We know that often we feel far from you. We need you, O Lord, to pull us close. Father, I pray for everybody along the range of experience that's in this room. I pray, God, that you will empower them by the working of the Holy Spirit to let go of the claims to the throne and instead receive you as the better king. Father, I pray for all of those who feel unworthy who feel ashamed, who know that they have cursed you and abandoned you. I pray, God, that you would help them to cast themselves before you, to repent, to say like Shimei did, I know that I have sinned. I am worthy of judgment. But then they would feel you, hear you, scoop them close, and say judgment has been deferred now and forever. Help us to see you, God, high and lifted up and close, close, close. You are so good, Lord Jesus. Help us to believe it. Make yourself prominent, Lord Jesus, for the sake of your people. Amen.